Okay, flip to Romans 10, and we're going to cover Romans 10, 5 through 13. Let's read that, and I'll pray, and we will look at our passage. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. These are the words of God. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you. Uh, thank you for the faith that you've given us by the gift of your Spirit. We are grateful that we've been brought into this covenant by grace through faith, and that being on the basis of your Son. Open our hearts, our ears, our minds, we pray. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So our message today is called The Word of Faith, and what we find here in this passage is essentially a very, very early Christian formulation of what it means to be saved and what it means for someone to become a Christian. So you have this category of Christian, and how do you get into that category? That's the question. And um, I think, you know, for some, you've been a Christian a long time. Uh, I grew up in the church personally, and, and so I've been around church, Bible, Jesus my entire life. Uh, I, I don't have a radical story where I was strung out on drugs and God saved me. Um, I, I was just a church boy, um, and in fact, I got made fun of and called that one day, and I got in a fight with a kid, because um, he said church boy, which I took as an insult, but I should have just said, okay, <laughs> you're right, such as seventh grade football nonsense. So I grew up in, in, in the church, but some of you may not have, and so this is a question I think that everyone really needs to think through. What does it mean to be a Christian? And this formulation here is a very, very early formulation of it. And one of the things that Paul clears up for us is the continuity of the Old and New Testaments. For, for many Christians today, the Old Testament really doesn't serve much of anything. Uh, it's usually just, we'll go to the New Testament, because we're New Testament Christians. And by the way, don't ever use that phrase. <laughs> You're not a New Testament Christian. You are a Christian. There's no need to um, throw out the Old Testament. In fact, if you want to confuse people, just say you're an Old Testament Christian and then watch them stare at you and then say, and a New, New Testament one. Uh, that'll confuse them as you go. So too many people, too many Christians believe today that in the Old Testament, the plan of salvation was this, obey God in order to be saved. That's the view. In the Old Testament, they just had to obey God and then they would be saved. And that, of course, is, is wrong. It was a works-based salvation, they, they believe. And they read things like Galatians and some of Romans, and that's their conclusion. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's, that's true. 
And then oftentimes people will turn to the New Testament and, and you know, Jesus came along, he fixed that error. Everybody was trying to be saved, but they couldn't do it, so Jesus fixes it. You know, believe in Jesus and then you'll be saved. Well, Lutherans, I don't know if anybody grew up Lutheran or not here, but Lutherans tend to create what's called a law-grace distinction. So Old Testament's law, New Testament's grace, and that's sort of their driving hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is just interpreting the Bible, how we interpret the Bible. Um, so they, they drive this wedge between the Testaments. So you have law, you have grace. And this is a dichotomy that's really created out of thin air. And of course, some Reformed folks commit the same hermeneutical error. It's not a law-grace distinction. It's law and grace from Genesis to Revelation and how those things play out. So the problem with, with this view, the view that I just described, aside from it being entirely nonsensical and exegetically unwarranted, is that Paul in this section, I believe, puts that error entirely to rest. You can't read, if you understand what Paul's saying here, he puts that error completely to rest. His argument is airtight. In just a few short verses, he quotes from Leviticus 18.5. He quotes from Deuteronomy 30, which we just read. He quotes again from Isaiah 28.16. And then the very last verse there, verse 13, he quotes from Joel 2.32. And so he pulls all of these Old Testament quotations together to prove his point, to prove that all along the Old Testament era was pointing to the coming Messiah who would restore and secure the covenant and he would establish his son as Lord and Savior. And I've said this a lot, but it's worth repeating. The New Testament, anyway, you have a study Bible at home and you have notes at the bottom. Well, the New Testament is almost like the notes at the bottom for the Old Testament at the top because the writers are constantly looking at the Old Testament and saying, look, here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. All of this points to Jesus. Everything you find in the Old Testament, it all speaks of Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself told people in, in various places and times, if you've read Moses, you've read the Law of the Prophets, all of that speaks of me. So it's not okay to say, well, the Old Testament is law and God was kind of a big meanie head. And in the New Testament, Jesus came to like as a PR stunt to make God look more palatable. That's not how you should read your Bible. So this Jesus would be Lord of all, and this word of faith would become a new working reality in the world as God seeks to genuinely save people. God desires to save, redeem men, women, and children. All of you, that's God's aim, is to save you, to rescue you, and to establish you in his grace. So... Look at, let's look at our passage. We're going to just summarize as we go. Back up to verse 4, though. Remember, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but Paul made a major statement in verse 4 of this chapter. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul means is that the law's purpose is summed up in Christ, and it is reestablished in a person on the basis of Christ. When it says that he's the end of the law, it doesn't mean, oh, hey, you became a Christian and now you can throw all that Old Testament law stuff away. It's completely and entirely irrelevant. Well, part of it's done away with. We read Hebrews and we see that we don't thankfully have to ruin the Wilson's wonderful um, 
Christmas festivities up here with bull blood. <laughs> we don't have to sacrifice an animal today. And uh, if you thought you were coming to experience that, you're out of luck. None of you thought that. And there's a reason for that, though, because Christians don't do that anymore. And there's a reason, because Jesus is the sacrifice. So the law is summed up in Christ, and it's reestablished in you on the basis of Christ. So the, the covenant law does not disappear when someone becomes a Christian. It's a covenant law. It doesn't disappear. Rather, the covenant law becomes a blessing to you instead of a curse. So Jesus is the culmination of the law, we might say. He takes the adversity out of the equation for his people. You were dead in your sins apart from Christ. You couldn't save yourself. You couldn't rescue yourself. And you couldn't even come up with a decent plan to even try to do that. That's how pitiful we are apart from Christ. And, and so Christ brings that adversity out of the equation. You're not condemned by the law anymore. Christ was condemned for you. And now if you're in Christ, Romans 8.1, there's no more condemnation. So your relationship to the law changes. So Jesus' death takes the curse of the law and he takes our utter inability to, to abide by it perfectly. And, he, and in his resurrection, he disperses the blessings of the covenant law so that the spirit abides in us as we establish justice and obedience in us, in ourselves, and in the world, essentially. So, Paul continues to institute this line of reasoning there in verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Now that's a direct quote from Leviticus 18.5. And interestingly enough, uh, anybody read Leviticus 18 this morning? Uh, it's not one of those favorite sections of Scripture that we tend to go to, especially when you're, you're trying to get a nice encouraging word on your coffee mug. You don't usually go to Leviticus, though you could, and there are good places in Leviticus for those types of things. But Leviticus 18 is situated within these ethical commands of God as it pertains to sexuality. It's interesting. He, he says there are a lot of things you're not supposed to do with your body. And, but in, in the midst of this is this comment that the person who does the commandments shall live, live by them. What, what is he, what's the point of him bringing it up? God warns Israel not to do what the Egyptians had done. He, he warned them not to do what the Egyptians had done with idolatry, nor are they to do as the Canaanites do with their perversion. So think of Deuteronomy. They're not in the promised land. They're out of Egypt. Look back. Don't be like the Egyptians. Look forward. See the Canaanites over here that you're going to conquer? Don't do what they do either. <laughs> not good. Not, not a good thing to do. So God had always promised, and you read it earlier, Melanie, but God had always promised to circumcise the hearts of his people, causing them to walk in his ways. That's not a New Testament invention. God had always promised that all the way back to Israel's day. He would circumcise their hearts by the Spirit, and Ezekiel 36 says this, that he would cause you to walk in his ways. He's the cause of it. Now, this, this citation here isn't about obeying the law in order to be saved. It's not what Moses is saying, and that's not what Paul is, is necessarily getting at either, though he's criticizing a, a, a view of that. Rather, God had rescued and saved Israel from Egypt. He separated them by his grace, and thus they were to live in light of that. 
All right, there's a reason that God gave the law after he had delivered them out of Egypt. He pulled them out of slavery, said, I've shown you grace. That's the, the prologue to the Ten Commandments. And you are now to obey me. I've saved you. I've rescued you. Follow what I have to say. So he didn't, he didn't tell Israel to obey his law so they could be righteous. He told them that they were righteous and that they were justified by the same faith of Abraham and that they need only believe. They, then, they, then they, as a saved and rescued people, could then be obedient to the covenant law. So, in other words, there's a way to obey God that is Christless, and then there's an, a way to obey God that is Christ-full, <laughs> full of Christ. There's a way of obeying God that is completely Christless, that is empty, but man, you can... You could decorate the outside of your house for Christmas and have Jesus as Lord on it. And you can have a, uh, there's a way of perhaps showing externally that you're a Christian. But as we know, Christian, Christianity is not on the externals, it's on the internals. What has the Spirit done to your heart? So that's, that's Paul's point here. There's a way to obey God that's Christless. And then there's a way to obey God that's full of Christ. Verse 6 and 7. But, or and, could be a, a just as viable of a translation, which sort of helps us interpret it. But, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Moses, he wrote Leviticus 18.5, and Moses wrote Deuteronomy 30. But what Moses is pointing to is from Leviticus 18.5 is the same thing from Deuteronomy 30, which he quotes here. Moses isn't speaking out of both sides of his mouth. The person who does the commandments and lives by them is within the realm of the righteousness of faith, he says. Meaning that the person who is of faith, the person who has faith, who believes on Jesus, exercises that faith in obedience to God. Think of James. James says, essentially, paraphrasing, you, you, you want um, the whole faith and works thing? You want to you wanna show me your faith? I'll show you my faith by my works. If, if faith is real, and, well, there's only a real faith. There's pretended faith, but there's a true faith that's grounded in obedience to God that is made manifest in, in your life. It's made, there's fruitfulness there. You're, you're kind, you're, you're gentle. Um, even the men, are you, are you, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Are you patient? Okay, those are things that prove the faith that's there. So this means, he says, there's no sense in trying to ascend to heaven to attain something. And, and Paul, by the way, if, in your Bible there, do you have parentheses? You should have parentheses there in verses 6 and 7 because... Paul is actually interpreting that text for us. He says, that is to bring Christ down, or that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's telling us what Moses was getting at. So there's no sense in trying to ascend to heaven to attain something. Why? Well, Christ has come. And then there's, that's his incarnation. His incarnation is ours. Right? That's what we are thrilled about Christmas. We love the fact that Christ took on flesh. Jesus took on flesh. And then there's also no sense in trying to descend into the abyss to attain something else. Well, why? what's the abyss? The place of the dead. Is Christ in the place of the dead? No, he's risen. 
That's his point. So explaining Paul's usage of Deuteronomy 30, I could do this for hours. And maybe we can take a lunch break and then come back. I don't know. It's up to you. But, uh, but suffice it to say that contextually speaking, Deuteronomy 30 gives hope after the bleak negative sanctions of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. So Deuteronomy 28, the first 14 verses are all blessing. If you obey me, this is what happens. But 15 through 68, that's a big chunk, are curses. And 29 sort of re-says re the same thing. If you don't obey me, this is what's going to happen. Deuteronomy 28, if you don't obey me, I will send a pandemic, whether or not it's, you know, <laughs> as severe as the media says or not. The confusion. In fact, one of those passages, I think it's in around verse 51 of Deuteronomy 28, talks about fever and inflammation. <laughs> so talk about gut health. How about Holy Spirit health? <laughs> um, if you don't obey, things go bad. If we don't obey, things go bad. But Deuteronomy 30 gives this beautiful picture of hope. Look, I will circumcise your hearts. I will make this um, easier for you. Israel was to be exiled because of her sins. But God in Deuteronomy 30 said that he would bring them back. They would be punished, but God would bring them back. And Paul emphasizes here that Jesus is the life giver. He's the one who's renewed covenant. He's the one who's given people salvation. He was born, he died, he was raised from the dead, and that gift of grace is now widely available to all men, women, and children, and all nations. So the gospel is essentially the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30's promises. That's Paul's point. All that Old Testament stuff comes to, comes to Jesus. Verse 8, but what does it say? That's his question. What does it say? In other words, pull out your Bible. Let's read. What does it say? What's the point of Deuteronomy 30? What's the point of Leviticus 18.5 when we consider Christ? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. In other parentheses here, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Moses' words is Paul's word is Jesus' word. Continuity in the text. The great eschatological event that Jesus has accomplished is this renewed covenant which brings everyone into God's glorious grace. This righteousness, you see the word righteousness there in the previous text. He's been speaking of it a lot. But this righteousness is their newfound status received by faith alone. That is what Paul means by Christ being the goal of the law in verse 4. Deuteronomy 30 promised that when the covenant renewal was made, the word of faith would not be far from you, but it would be near, and thus the righteous status of being the people of God, issued because of faith in God's Son, would be given to God's people. So the law couldn't do it, but the law could point us to the person who could do it, that being Jesus. In other words, when Christ died and was raised, this word of faith was actualized in a new way. It was brought near. And the question is, how near? We'll look at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The word is near in your mouth. And what God does in Christ is put a Christ confession right on your lips. We think of, how close is God? Oh, he's in my heart. He's in your mouth, actually. Because you are confessing 
Jesus. He puts the Christ confession right on your tongue. And note that Paul emphasizes the resurrection here. What are you supposed to believe in order to be a Christian? Not in yourself. That's like the fun stuff of today. Just believe in yourself. Well, there's a sense in which you should trust God with who he's made you to be. Okay, I can, I can go there. But at the very root, it's who are we believing? What are we believing? We're believing that Christ was raised from the dead. He was dead. He's not dead anymore. He's not in heaven alone and never came. He was incarnated. And then he died. Then he was raised. And then he rules and reigns in heaven. That's the idea here. So Moses says to hear. Moses says to hear and listen. The gospel is the noise. That's what you're supposed to hear. When faith is exercised, it is because of the Holy Spirit who has brought covenant renewal into your mouth, into your heart. And this renewal is planted inside of the recesses of your being. That is is to then be heralded into the world. See, this is, as a side note, this is why um, Islam is so incompatible with several philosophical categories but obviously with Christian truth. Um, I don't know who watched Northam's exercise there uh, in his attempt at a winning an Emmy like Cuomo, but he was talking about worship and, oh, you can, says the infanticidal you know, tyrant, but you can worship God in this way as if he even knows what worship is. He doesn't, he doesn't have a Christ confession on his mouth. He doesn't. He doesn't have that. There's no evidence of that. There's no fruit of that. Um, but that's the, that's the sort of thing we have in, in our society right now. The, if you're permitted anything, you're permitted to just you know, believe whatever you want to believe so long as it doesn't you know, invalidate me. So suddenly you're tolerating everything uh, except Christ, except for Christianity. But that's for, for Muslims, you know, God can never have a son. And for uh, God would never send a spirit to inspire a book. There's all these different um, beliefs, but for us, we, Jesus came and his confession's on your mouth. Um, Paul emphasizes it later, and I think it's in 1 Corinthians, but it might be 2 Corinthians, but this idea of no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can have a lot of pagans say Jesus is Lord, but it's not, it's a fake confession. So we have in the gospel a deconfession of idolatry and the establishment of our own law-keeping righteousness, right? We, don't, we deconfess that. We don't go to Christ and say, I confess that I'm an incredible person and thank you for saving me. That's a, we deconfess that. We, we, we confess that we are idolaters, that we're sinful people who need Jesus. That's the confession. And we also are... We, um, we have a deconfession of idolatry and the establishment of our own law-keeping righteousness. And we have a renouncement and a descent from the old man and the old creation. And then we confess Christ as Lord and King of a new order altogether. So when you confess Jesus as Lord, you're confessing that Caesar's not. When you confess Jesus as Lord, you're confessing that you're not. When you confess that Christ was risen from the dead, you're confessing a truth as opposed to something that that is false. So every confession also has a deconfession with it. That's that's why the tolerance game doesn't work. (laughs) You you can't validate all truth as if it's collectively all true. 
and then suddenly you've blown logic out the window, right? It's, there's no, there's no point at that point. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Belief then takes root in the heart, the innermost part of your being. The gospel seed planted by the Spirit makes your mouth and lips move to a new confession. That's the Lordship of Christ. More on that in a minute. Verse 11. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul has quoted this verse from Isaiah already in chapter 9, and here he is again. If you remember, Christ is a stumbling stone to Jews who see it as a scandal and to Greeks who see it as folly. But the person who believes, the person who fully apprehends Christ by faith, that person is not put to shame. And in fact, what Isaiah is getting at and and what Paul gets at is this shame. He's not paraded at the final judgment as a sinner worthy of final and eternal justice. He's not put to shame. Verse 12, for, keep saying for a lot. He's building his argument. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. There is no distinction between people. We've already seen this in Romans 3. There's no distinction between people when it comes to sin, nor when it comes to humanity's inability to please God. There's no distinction. It follows then that Christ being the goal of the law and the Savior of those who are dead in sin means that he is invariably the Lord of all too. So that's why there's no distinction. And get this. Jesus, in the gospel, brings a truckload of heavenly riches from the storehouses of heaven to his people, too. And he says you only need to call on him. Verse 13, that's a quote from Joel 2.32. It says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel speaks of the same covenant renewal as Moses does. And here, Paul emphatically declares that not only is Jesus Lord and Caesar the parody, Jesus is God in the flesh. If you were to go back in your Bible and look at Joel 2.32, you don't have to now, but if you were to go later, you would notice that the word Lord in the Old Testament is sometimes capitalized. You ever notice that? L-O-R-D. And that the reason is when it says Lord God, Lord is God's name, Yahweh, um, Jehovah. God is just a, it means Elohim in, in Hebrew. He is the Lord God. Paul says that Jesus is Lord. He's the Kyrios. He's, he's, the, um, he's the creator God who has come in the flesh. So the only way, he says, to be delivered from the clutches of sin and ushered into the new covenant promise of a new creation is to call on the name of the coven, covenant-keeping God. Call on his name. Period. That's it. Let's pull out a few things here. How might we apply this passage? One, one drum that Paul continues to beat is the fact that Christ has come near. The word near, the word coming near that Moses says, Jesus says, is about, or Paul says is about Jesus. That's the message of Christmas. Kids, what's the message of Christmas? Christ has come near, right? Say it with me. Christ has come near. He's come near. How near? How near did, did God send Jesus? right inside your heart and right on your mouth. That's how near. Deuteronomy speaks of the Word of God, which is Christ and His person and His work, coming to you. 
Christ came to you, not just those other Christians over there or the people who appear to have it all together, that sort of thing. No, Christ came to you. And kids, you need to know that. That's why we celebrate Advent, the coming of Christ. He came near to you. How near? In your heart and in your mouth. Which seems to be a funny thing. Jesus is in my mouth. Well, when you confess that he's Lord, he's, he's, he's all up in there, okay? And that's confessing the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is in your mouth. Those are the words we speak. And the thing that, that makes Paul's argument so strong is his use of Deuteronomy here. Remember that, that Paul explains Israel's then current unbelief. Here is Paul writing in about 64 AD. Nero has taken over. Nero has not gone sideways yet. He's, he is getting there. Nero was one of the most wicked tyrants to ever exist on this planet. Um, right up there with Lenin and Pol Pot and all these other um, pagan communists. But he was there. But, but he wasn't as bad yet when Paul is writing this. Remember, Paul is writing and he is looking around at a lot of Jews became Christians, but a lot of Jews did not. A lot of his kinsmen did not. And so he's evaluating their unbelief. So like Moses's day, they were in Paul's day under the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and 29. They were still suffering exile. Rome was still ruling over them. You know that feeling you get right now where we're eight months into the two-week flatten the curve thing and you feel like, wait, they're still ruling over us. All right, magnify that by 10 and now you're a Jew in the first century under the boot of Rome. All right, that, that's that feeling, that nagging feeling of I need to be delivered from the media and from incompetent governors. <laughs> God, would you deliver us? That's the mindset. But God, he has provided an option, an escape hatch, so to speak, that leads to salvation. And, and by the way, when you call on the name of the Lord to be saved, I don't mean that, I don't think that means when you call upon the name of the Lord, you're going to get whisked off to heaven someday. Salvation in the fullest sense is the new heavens and new earth, right? A resurrected body with Christ forever. That's the fullest sense of salvation. But I, I think Paul's emphasis here is deliverance in the now. Deliverance in the here and now. <clears throat> so it's a real-time deliverance. It's this transformation which shapes their future. And that transformation is Jesus. This old law would become a renewed law, guiding their worship, guiding them by the Spirit as they follow Christ into the world. And if they would believe, they'll, they'll be marked out in history by faith as the people of God in the Messiah. That's, that's Paul's thinking from Deuteronomy. So God had vindicated Jesus, and he would do it again to his people. So, there's no need to go to heaven and bring Christ down. He's already come. There's no need to go down to get him. He's no longer dead. The thing that, the, the thing that unbelievers aren't looking for is a true confession, the very thing that they need. Um, our Christianity is a, a, faith, a faith of confession, we confess certain truths. We cited the Apostles' Creed earlier together. We confess certain truths, and these are things that are, in fact, true. <laughs> things that are historical um, things that God has done. Now, Israel, though, they were longing in this state of exasperation for some sort of deliverance. They were waiting for some sort of deliverance, but Paul says, God has done it. It's Christ. 
But the only way to get the blessing of that deliverance is to believe in the heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. That's the deliverance. So Paul's, Paul's emphasis here is that Jesus is the God of Israel made manifest. He is the personal embodiment of God. He has come to do what God said he would do, namely, circumcise the hearts of his people so that they want what God wants and they do what God wants accomplished. That's a Christmas story for you. Kids, what does the word Emmanuel mean? Anyone know? Emmanuel. Yes, yes. Or if you want to be a straight Hebrew um, uh, pedantic type, it means literally with us God. <laughs> um, God with us. God came to dwell with us. He came, he came near, and that was in the person of Jesus. And that's, that's it. That's the hope of Christmas, right? And I'm going to talk more about that next week. But, but that's it. Moses said to hear, all the way back in Deuteronomy 30, Moses said to hear, the gospel is the noise you're supposed to hear. Moses said, listen, Jesus is the one speaking. Now, recall Paul's problem with unbelief there in verse 3, if you go back up. If one does not receive the righteousness of God by faith, he will inevitably try to establish his own. That's always what happens. If you won't receive the righteousness of faith, you'll try to establish your own. And this is the perennial problem of self-righteousness. We like to laud ourselves. We like to give praise to ourselves. We, we, we like it, and we feel insecure unless we don't have it. We find ourselves to be Im- impressive, thinking that God is favorable to us because of how neat of a person we are. Okay? And, and we know deep down we're not as neat as we like to think. The, ch- the chief problem with self-righteousness is this unholy insistence on having God on our terms. And you think, well, what is God like? What is God like? Well, he must like, you know, my favorite things. <laughs> he, must, he must think the way I think. Of course God thinks this way. I think this way. And we have the audacity to conjure up such things. But I think this is what we're at right now in our culture. The problem with, with, with unbelievers who hate God and, and they're today's intoleristas, they have this severe case of Christian phobia. Tolerate everything except for the Christian gospel. Tolerate every view. We'll add letters to the acronyms that we like to think are so beautiful, and, and, but not Christian. We won't, we won't have that. See, they want God on their terms. Tolerate everyone except for the exclusivity of Christ. And Paul here destroys the argument. The world has a rival confession. The world has a rival confession. Media today is nothing but a bunch of televangelists for their repugnant filth. Um, If you saw Northam's um, rather sad press conference, uh, he tried to use fear by showing a couple videos. You're not scared enough, so let me scare you into being more scared. That's That's a confession, by the way. That's a confession of fear. And of course, we know the Bible says perfect love casts out what? Fear. So they're televangelists. Anything to rid our society of Christ and his worldview. They have this word of faith, but it's a faith in themselves. It's unbelief, and it only leads to shame. Which is why Christians, I'm going to exhort you here, you must stand in your confession. 
You have to stand in your confession. You can't get to just confess it behind closed doors. You have to stand in it. And that's why we have the problems that we're having today. We're not standing in the confession that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord of my life. He is Lord of my family. He is Lord over this church. He's Lord over all churches. He is Lord over Governor Northam. And he is Lord over President Trump. He is Lord over the Supreme Court. He's Lord over this continent. He is Lord of all. And we have to stand in that confession. You, you can't just say it and think it in your, in your mind. You have to stand in it. You have to act like it's true. You have to act like it's true. He is Lord of the world, which means that no Caesar is permitted to take that title for himself. And, and I think far too many Christians want to reduce the word of faith down to a word of niceties and empty platitudes. You know, I, during the election, I, it's, it's, I, no matter who's president, Jesus is king. Man, I want to hurt someone. I, <laughs> that's true, but it means nothing if it's just a meme. It's nothing. So a word of advice, don't limit the gospel. Don't limit our confession. Don't limit the lordship of Christ and this word of faith down to Christ being Lord of your heart and only Lord of your heart. If you want to see Christ established in your life, then look to him. Don't look up and don't look down, he says. Moses and Paul agree. Look to him. And where is he? In your heart and on your lips. That's where he's at. He's not far. He is near. He is here. And note that it's a word of faith. It's a word of faith. It's not a word of ladder-climbing self-righteousness, dualistic to descent into the Deepak Chopra view of you know, a subconsciousness where you're enlightened, sort of an, uh, an Eastern philosophy, right? It's not a word of waffling and conflicting desires, not conflicting or double-minded thoughts, not closeted beliefs to be kept for yourself. It's a word of faith. Christ-dripping, spirit-saturated, God-glorifying faith, trust, sincerity, humility, and confidence in an emboldened pursuit of Christ's name in all the earth. So don't you dare limit the lordship of Christ. What did, what did Jesus bury with him in his death? What did Jesus bury with him? In obedience without Christ. That's what he buried. And what did Jesus bring with him out of the grave in his resurrection? In obedience with Christ. Obedience from a Holy Spirit circumcised heart. So church, you have been reestablished in the covenant by the Messiah. Law and grace are not opposites. They don't need to be reconciled because they're not enemies. We are saved by grace through faith, making Christ our confession. So stand in it. We are marked out as the people of God by faith. When we're marked out by faith, we make known the righteousness of faith, the law of righteousness, by living differently, right? Confessing differently and being sanctified differently than the world. If you want to be looked at and jeered at today, just confess that what you hear on the media is false. Make that confession, and then you'll start to see you living in the confession of Christ. And lastly, it is, it is Christ who holds all things together, and it is... Christ, whose gospel word of faith is to rescue people from their sins. So that's what we proclaim. We want more and more people rescued from their sins. So may our confession then, since it is Christ on our lips, may it be bold, may it be unwavering, and may it be confident, especially during a time like this. Let's pray. Father, you have been gracious to us in giving us your word, and we thank you that Moses and Paul are not at odds. 
and that you have given us um, Paul's words, which were penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, helping us explain things um, in a way that is, is, is helpful so that we understand that we have Christ in our heart and Christ in our lips and, and we get to participate in that confession in the world to, to see this world transformed. So, Father, I pray for Cross and Crown that you would help us stand in that confession. This word of faith being the potent thing that it is, I, I ask and pray that you would help us to be bold, to be winsome, Father, to, um, to, to actually rival the confessions that the world is attempting to make right now. And may your spirit go before us. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what it means to, to be forgiven and what it means to, to live in light of that. And so may your law be honored in our lives and may it be honored in the world. In Christ's name I pray, amen.